Good afternoon, New York, and the rest of our listeners around the globe. My name is June Stoyer, and I'm the host of the Organic View Radio Show. Our podcast is available on iTunes, Zoom, and all major podcast providers. So if you can't catch the show live, you can download it or simply use our free podcast player, which is available on our website at www.theorganicview.com. If you'd like to connect with us, please post your question on our wall on Facebook or send me a tweet at June Stoyer on Twitter. If you'd like to be on the show or would like to find out about sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at questions at theorganicview.com. Today's show is sponsored by RamVPN.com, the leading provider of next-generation online anonymity and VPN security solutions. Their architecture is unique, tamper-safe, and 100% guaranteed. They even accept Bitcoin. Listeners of the Organic View Radio Show can receive a 15% discount in three-month and six-month personal plans by using the coupon code ORGVIEW. That's O-R-G-V-I-E-W. For more promotional offers, please visit our website at www.theorganicview.com. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Sylvia Bernstein. We're going to be talking about something called aquaponics. And the burning question is, can we feed the world with aquaponics? Now, what exactly is aquaponics? Let's just get into this for a little bit here. With the growing demand for organic food production, more and more people are looking at sustainable models that will produce a high yield without necessarily having to farm a large acreage. One of the most popular methods is called aquaponics. Aquaponics is the cultivation of fish and plants together in a constructed, recirculating ecosystem utilizing natural bacteria cycles to convert fish waste to plant nutrients. So what exactly does aquaponics gardening entail, and how does it work? What does it cost? What's involved? Well, on today's show, I have expert Sylvia Bernstein. She is the president and founder of the Aquaponics Source, which is the only company in North America dedicated entirely to the home aquaponic gardener. And let me tell you, her background is phenomenal, folks. Uh, she also has this wonderful, wonderful community forum. It's called the Aquaponic Gardening Community, which is the largest online community site that is dedicated to aquaponic gardening in North America. And, I mean, just everything that this woman does is just incredible. And I know that there are many folks tuning in, um, and especially I'd like to send a shout-out to my friend Tom Cooley, who introduced me to Sylvia and all of her wonderful work. Uh, so thank you, everybody, for all of your support, especially on social media. And I, at this point, would like to welcome to the show Sylvia Bernstein. Good afternoon, Sylvia. Well, hi there. Happy <laughs> to be here. Great to have you. And uh, from what I understand, you have been at um, Mother Earth News Festival in Pennsylvania. Yes. Yes, that was in September, and boy, was that an amazing I missed event. you. I, I don't know how I missed you, but I know that um, I was uh, in one interview after the other after the other, and uh, I know I will definitely be back there this year, and uh, just so many wonderful people at that event. Let me tell you, it's just, it, it was one of the most wonderful events I've ever attended. Yes, absolutely. It was uh, It was kind of mind-blowing going from... Joel Salatan to you know other uh, the woman who wrote this organic life suddenly her name's <laughs> I'm I'm uh, forgetting it but it was just oh my god all my heroes were in one yeah. space in one weekend it was mind blowing Joel Salatin was actually just on the show on Friday 
Was and, he really? Um, I know who you're talking about, and she... Uh, Joan Guy be... Gussow. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So. She actually she actually gave me a hug. She thought I was somebody else. <laughs> and we got to talking and uh I uh I was a fan of hers before I even knew it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's just amazing. So now Sylvia, tell me, how did you get how did you get started? I mean, were you gardening as a kid? What what piqued your interest? <laughs> you know, I have to confess, no. We, uh, when I was growing up, I grew up in California, and uh, we, my parents would have chores that we would do over the weekend, and my mom was very clever, and she would write all the chores out on a piece of paper and then cut them up and put them in a jar, and we would draw our chores. And any time I had a chore that had anything to do with the outside, I traded it with my brother or sister. <laughs> I was not a gardener growing up. Uh, wasn't into the dirt. And uh, ironically, I went to University of California, Davis, which is a big ag school, and I studied agricultural economics there. And But at the time, I was really actually interested in a business degree, and so I didn't pay much attention to the ag classes. It was more about the business degree. And now I look back, and I just sort of, you know, one of those where you hit yourself on the head and say, man, I wish I had paid a lot more attention. <laughs> back then when I was in my 20s. But uh, no, that wasn't really where it started. Where it started was when I got married and had my first home. And now all of a sudden, we had this backyard that, wow, I guess I got to figure out what I'm doing here. And uh, started getting into it and really got into it. I mean, some switch flipped at me and, and uh, my agricultural roots came back, I think. And just started gardening, especially vegetable gardening. Uh, I was was quite passionate about it, and uh, to the point where my husband, as a sort of semi-joke, one Christmas gave me a floodlight so that I could keep working <laughs> in the middle of the night outside. <laughs> I think he was trying to give me a message. But uh, so I I did that an awful lot. I stayed home with my kids for a number of years. Uh, and that was, I sort of described that as my sanity, because I could get out and uh, do productive things in the yard, but still be close enough to the house that I was sort of monitoring what was going on. So when I went back to work, I had, I had been in with uh, computers and systems consulting before then, but when I went back after staying home with the kids, I definitely wanted to stay connected to working with plants. And I was fortunate enough to find a job with a company here called AeroGrow. And AeroGrow was developing a product called the AeroGarden. And you might have seen it. It's, it's all over the place now. It was being sold on QVC and in Target. And, mm. and it's a little kitchen countertop hydroponic garden. comes complete with lights and, and all that. And I joined them in 2003 as one of the original founders of the company, and my focus was on the plant growing technology. So I started the plant lab and the nursery and was in charge of the product development around the seed kits. And in that capacity, I learned an awful lot about hydroponic growing, which is a fantastic, super productive way to grow plants, especially in an indoor or greenhouse environment, mm. with one big problem. And that problem is that hydroponics is completely dependent upon chemical nutrients. 
because it's a very sterile system and there's nothing in the system, there's no bacteria or worms or life forms to convert organic waste into something that's available to plants, right? I can't imagine a world without earthworms. It's just... Exactly. Well, you know, if you've ever seen a hydroponic setup, it's very sterile. You've got your, your plants, your water, and your chemicals, and it works, and it works great, but it just always bugged me, and it, it bugged a lot of other people that yeah. worked at AeroGrow. We were looking for an organic solution. Mm. And so in that search, through the trade literature, we came across some articles on aquaponics. And I read about the fish actually providing the nutrients to the plants, and my first reaction was, no way. It just can't be that easy. You can't go from, you know, I've, I'm named on three or four patents with nutrients. You, know? you can't go from being that level of complexity where you're actually patenting something to just a fish pooping in the water. But it ends up that a friend of mine at AeroGrow tried it. He set up a system in his basement, and he kept telling me, you got to come see it. It works. It works. And I, so finally I said, okay, okay, you convinced me. And I went and saw it, and I'll be damned. His, his basement was a jungle, and it was growing off of nothing but fish. And the worms and the microorganisms that were in his uh, media environment that were converting that waste into a form that was available to the plants. So six months later, I quit my job. I was the VP of marketing for AeroGrow at that point, and some would say I was nuts leaving a really high-paying job for uh, just uh, venturing into this new world of aquaponics. Oh, I, I don't think you're nuts at all. I, I, to me, it would be like working at, um, I don't know, a place that uh, was supposed to have, um, I don't know. <clears throat> it, it just seems like such an artificial world, Yeah. and I, I don't know if I would manage. <laughs> yeah, you know, when, when you've got this, this uh, thing in the back of your mind every day when you go to work that you're just not quite sure you're doing what's right for the planet. Uh, that's it's just not a good way to exist. So, so anyway, we started two years ago. We started the aquaponics source, and uh, I've just been a, uh, a complete fanatic evangelist ever since about aquaponics. It's just an incredible way to grow plants. Uh, and to grow fish, frankly, it addresses as many issues in the aquaculture world as it does in the agriculture world. Now, one of the biggest questions that uh, many audience members have been asking is, you know, is it necessary, do you, do you need to eat the fish? Is this something that vegans can do? Oh, you absolutely do not need to eat the fish. Um, in fact, in, in a lot of bigger systems, uh, even commercially, people are growing koi and, you know, really beautiful fish that they're either uh, just enjoying or they're selling uh, for, for ponds and outdoor environments. Uh, you can grow. The, the only real uh, rule of thumb with, and I, I talk a lot about rules of thumb, you'll, you'll find out, but the main rule of thumb around the fish is it just needs to be a freshwater fish. 
So any freshwater fish will do. And so if you think about going to your local pet store and the kind of fish that you might pick up there, those all work beautifully in an aquaponic system. So it has to be freshwater. It can't be like, you know, salmon or, or something that is typically grown in a saltwater environment. And the other things that you want to pay some attention to are that you've got to make sure that if you're getting different kinds of fish, that they will play nicely together and not eat each other. Uh, you want to make sure that they'll all survive in the same temperature range. But um, beyond that, you know, the sky's the limit. Well, now, when you're beginning, what are some of the things that you would advise someone who has absolutely no idea what they're doing, uh, what are some of the materials that they need to start out with, or should they just start, um, I mean, should you start off with a smaller um, space, or, you know, what are some of the ground rules, I guess? Uh Well, you know, I I can't resist that the the first thing that I would suggest is that they get my book. Hey, I'm I'm a very big proponent of, uh, you know, you educate yourself first, try to connect with other people, and that's what I love about your forum. Um, You know, you have this whole online community where you can post questions, and then if you have some sort of crisis, uh, you can read what other people have done when they've been in that situation. And that was the second suggestion that I was going to have, absolutely. So my book is called Aquaponic Gardening, a step-by-step guide to growing fish and vegetables together. And it really takes you through everything you need to know start to finish. So that's, you know, the first thing you should have in your hand. The second thing is join the aquaponic gardening community because it's this very friendly group of people that are all, you know, aquaponic gardening is pretty new here in the United States. Uh, and so we're all, you know, somebody's considered an expert when they've been doing it for two years, right? So you shouldn't be intimidated just getting involved in this because 95% of the people on that site are either still planning their system or they've only been doing it for six months. You know, there's no, you know, never feel nervous about going in and asking questions. But uh, it's it's really about sort of open source information. This is such an important technology that the whole notion of sort of learning something and then keeping it close to the vest is really abhorrent to a lot of us, actually. It's, it's you know, the, the time has come and gone for people to be thinking about important food-growing technology as being patentable, frankly. It's, it's about sharing that information and learning because we got to learn fast. Yes, we do, and especially since there is a very, very big demand for high-quality, organic, uh, locally grown, should I say food, might I add, um, because people understand that they don't want something that is coming from 3,000 miles away. They want something that is grown where they know what the quality is. They can understand what uh, is involved with um, not just the actual produce that's being grown but in the environment and what it's doing for the environment and the fact that they are not uh, necessarily contributing to all the issues that we have with all of the energy that's used in order to import many of these foods that we consume. Mm, You just are so right about that. And there's nothing more local than growing it in your own backyard or basement. 
so you know that's that's really where I get a lot of my passion from. My whole focus is on getting people set up with aquaponic gardens, frankly, any kind of garden, but my particular focus is aquaponic gardens in their own home uh, or in a backyard greenhouse. You know, it's getting connected to your food. And for those in your audience who do eat fish, getting connected with the fish you eat, the protein you eat. Now, I think there have been so many wonderful advancements in the poultry industry because of people that have backyard chickens. Now they're aware of what it takes to, frankly, make a chicken happy, and they're paying attention to the food that's being fed to those chickens. In the, the aquaculture world, they, uh, you know, how much... How much attention do we really pay to when you're you're standing in front of that seafood counter? Now, now we pay attention to well, was it farm raised or was it wild caught? I'm actually not sure which one's better. Frankly, I could I could spend an hour on that, but you know they all have issues with them. And when was the last time that you actually thought about well, gee, I wonder what that fish was fed when it was growing up? You know, it's just not a part of our national conversation yet. But yeah, I think that the more yeah. people who grow their own, mm. the more aware they're going to be and the conversation will start. And that's, that is really something that hits home for many people because, you know, we take for granted the conditions that these animals are raised in. And the bottom line is we are what we eat. And for people that do consume meat and fish, uh, you know, whatever that animal is eating and fish are animals, right. uh, you're eating basically whatever that fish ate, and whatever water, the condition of the water, might I add, that mm-hmm. fish is living in, mm-hmm. whatever chemicals, whatever um, bacteria, wh- whatever the case may be, Yes, that, Absolutely. Fish, that fish is going to absorb all of it, and then the minute that you eat the fish, you're absorbing it as well. So, That's right. Um, and it is possible to have a very cleanly raised fish. I mean, if you raise your own, I mostly focus on tilapia, as do most North American aquaponic gardeners. It's, it's just a very easy fish to grow, and it's uh, it actually tastes deli- it's fabulous. It's a really, really delicious fish when it's been cleanly raised and recently harvested then it's a really good tasting fish. It tastes nothing like the fish that grows over in China, which, you know, who knows what those fish are eating and who knows what sort of conditions they've been raised in. Well, they they repurpose their their wastewater for human consumption. So, you know, when you're talking about gray water that's being used for human, uh, for drinking water, that's a big problem. So if they're doing that, their own population what are they doing to the food and not many people they just don't get it and i think the more people that start to pay attention to where the food is coming from how it's produced which is actually joel saladin's message uh in his book (laughs) folks this ain't normal i mean he he just really hit it right on the head Mm -hmm. and as you pointed out just with as with the backyard chicken movement the same thing with aquaponics the more that people understand the growing conditions necessary and what is required then they start paying attention and then things start to really click 
and then more awareness is just naturally uh, produced because of that awareness. It's firsthand education that you just can't beat. Right, exactly. And we are actually, I'm super excited that in the next couple of weeks, we are going to be introducing an organic feed on our website. Uh, it's, it's, it's the only organic feed that I know of in the country. Now, Sylvia, and can we just talk about that for a minute? Because the, the yeah. whole food situation is something that, you know, I hear different things from uh, the audience about uh, what type of food or how to produce food that is organic for the fish. Mm-hmm. Now, can you explain to me what problems you see with uh, the food that is available for fish that you're raising and why is it a problem and you know uh, how did you find this particular product line? Sure, sure, yeah, I'd love to. Uh, it's a subject I feel really passionately about because it all starts with demand. So back to what we were talking about that the voices will be raised when we are raising our own fish in, in, you know, in our own backyards, then we're going to start demanding it. But right now, there's very little demand for organic fish in this country, right? It's entirely possible to have an organic fish if you're growing them in recirculating aquaculture systems, if, if you're growing them in these you know, giant um, tanks. But there's no demand for it. So because of that, there's, it's impossible, or it will be impossible until the next few weeks from us, it's impossible to find an organic feed. Now, here are the three biggest issues with fish feed as it is uh, produced right now in this country. Problem number one is the fish meal. Now, when you think about it, fish like tilapia are omnivorous. Other fish like trout and uh, bass are carnivorous. So they're getting their protein from somewhere. Well, fish eat other fish, right? We've all seen the picture of the big Mm -hmm. fish with its mouth open eating the littler fish, eating the littler fish. That's, That's what fish do is they eat other fish. And so fish tastes really delicious to a fish. But the problem with fish meal Uh, as it is constituted in most fish food, is that it's actually being harvested from the ocean. So it's being, you know, one of the big benefits of aquaculture is that it lessens the, the burden on ocean fishing because we all know we're draining our oceans of fish right now. But then to make their feed, we're turning around and draining more fish from the ocean. So... That's a big sustainability issue that a lot of us have with the feed. The next issue is that there is a lot of corn and soy used as filler in fish feed. Oh, and especially with the GMO corn and soy. There's the hitch. So in order to produce an inexpensive feed, uh, you have to go with GMO corn and soy because, you know, God, what are the statistics now, 92 93%? of all corn and soy in this country is I think it's like you think it's that high, but, uh, you know, they're making a dent, but the organic farmers are fighting it. Well, good. And I know (laughs) that you can find non-GMO corn and soy because this gentleman that's done the formulation for us has managed to do it. So, 
we have found non-GMO corn and soy. The third issue is that uh, feed for fish typically involves animal parts, terrestrial animal parts. And a lot of this is uh, ground up bone and feather from chickens and any meat that's left on them. Now it's it's cooked at a very high temperature and then it's ground into a fine powder and it's apparently a really great source of calcium and some other nutrients. However, a lot of us have a real issue with feeding our fish ground up terrestrial animals. I know I would because I wouldn't trust it, especially yeah. what I've what I've learned from uh pet food expert Susan Thixton. Uh, she has an organization called Truth About Pet Food, and uh, she's just remarkable. I mean, there's nothing that this woman doesn't know, and she's really been pioneering the whole movement to get a $30 billion unregulated industry uh, to change. And it's, you know, it's a big, big, uh, <laughs> big, big uphill fight, but she has been really working hard. But because of the work that she's done, yeah, uh, any type of... Uh, chicken or even fish or anything, unless you produce it yourself, you really don't know. You really can't trust the source. It's right. unfortunate because they take rendered animals that have been, well, they're rendered animals that uh, have actually been euthanized from some of the shelters, and that's basically what they're putting in the food. So, you know, if they're doing that for cat and dog food, what are they going to do with fish food? Well, exactly. Exactly. And with cat and dog food, you have owners of cats and dogs that are very passionate about their pets. I know I am about my mm. dog, and we are paying a lot more attention than we are paying to what's being fed the fish at, that's behind the glass at that fish counter. So, you know, all of these, these three issues, which are really the three big uh, issues, you know, fish feed has been scientifically formulated over years to perfection in order to grow fish really fast in an aquaculture operation and to create healthy fish which is you know we we are the we are responsible for these animals lives and we should be growing them in a healthy manner um, so I'm none of what I'm saying has anything to do with the quality of this feed as far as growing up a fish, but it has everything to do as an aquaponic gardener with the message of sustainability that we just we need to be uh, closing that loop and not having these these you know unsustainable inputs coming into our system and we're getting there. We're getting there. There's actually a lot of work that's being done on fish meal alternatives right now. There's a company here in Colorado that is working with brewery mash uh, from uh, leftover from making beer. Hmm. Uh, I know of another company that's actually growing bugs. <laughs> the bugs get ground up and, and become a fish meal substitute. So, And a lot of the work that's happening is just trying to make it palatable to the fish. Mm. You know, there's lots of ways to make protein, but the fish have to go for it as much as they go for yeah. eating other fish. So, you know, that's the challenge. But I think in the next year or two, there's actually going to be a lot of breakthroughs. Well, it's a tremendously popular method of uh, gardening, and 
Let me tell you, uh, the amount of people that have been asking about, you know, how do I get started, what do I need, what's involved, what are uh, things that I need to know, and, you know, are there any things that are, um, you know, is, is this going to be something that is going to be um, a little too much for a newbie, or is this something that I can handle? And, you know, like with anything else, you start off with something that you can manage. If you get too big too fast, it's like with any type of garden. If you go too big too soon and you don't know what you're doing, you're going to be overwhelmed and then you're just going to kind of give up. But if you start off with a fairly small-sized uh, area, I think that's something that's manageable. Now, right. one of the questions that I have is um, how do you get around how do you get around the whole plastic issue? I mean, obviously you have to line the fish pond. Um, what, I mean, are there any developments where you can minimize the amount of plastic that you're using? Uh, sure, you can use fiberglass if you're building entirely new systems. But really what a lot of people do is they, they create systems using recycled materials. So rather than getting rid of the plastic altogether, what they're doing is they're using recycled storage containers. Um, they're using recycled bathtubs. So there's there's a reuse component that I you like can the re yeah, I like that idea. The recycled bathtub. You see, um, as a master composter, it's interesting. I have a couple of different uh, compost um, compost piles. One of them happens to use a. Uh, a receptacle that's made from recycled plastic, and I cringe, but it's just uh, for demonstration purposes. And now you have to understand what people are using, so on and so forth. And uh, you know, a lot of the tumblers are made out of plastic, but uh, it's it's important for understanding different techniques and so on and so forth, so that you can have practical experience. But my feeling is, I want as I want no plastic in near my my compost, uh, if at all possible. So. For someone such as myself, I would opt to use um, an old bathtub. And, you know, it's interesting, up on my parents' farm when I was growing up, we used to use old bathtubs actually to um, as, a, as a water receptacle for the horses and for the cows. Oh, sure. And I used to think that my parents were nuts. I was mortified. But, <laughs> you know, it, it's interesting when you become an adult <laughs> and now that... Now that what's called organic farming is very trendy, uh, it, as a kid, you're mortified, and then when you're an adult and you see other people doing it, it's just like, wow, this is great. You know, why wasn't this trendy back in the day? But, um, <laughs> exactly. You know, I, I just, exactly. I like the whole, I like the whole concept of using the bathtubs because, you, you know, let's face it, that's, that is one item that really takes up a lot of space in the landfill, and let's face it, it's not like it's going to break down any time too soon. Right, and I, I have this fantasy of having a pink clawfoot bathtub aquaponic system someday. That <laughs> we'll see if I ever go anywhere with that. But uh, yeah, I think you can actually have a lot of fun with it. There's a there's a friend of mine here in um, Boulder who has two bathtub systems he, he lives in sort of a cooperative housing situation and they've put two out on their front porch and they live right downtown and they've put up a sign 
describing what's happening because he said they had so many people walking down the sidewalk and then just doing a double take and then stopping and so they put this sign up about you know there's actually fish in these bathtubs and we're growing aquaponically and uh it's really pretty cool so yeah they make they make wonderful containers now explain to me how do you keep how do you keep the water from freezing especially since you're in a climate that for the most part is pretty cold well, and that is a challenge in our climate. Uh, if you can afford it, I highly recommend that people put up a greenhouse in their backyard, you know, even a small greenhouse, something that will give you the ability to grow year-round without freezing. So, you know, it's, it's just reality that these systems have water flowing through them, and it's important that the water continue to flow. Um, and where we are, I'm, I'm, we just had the biggest snowstorm in the history of Boulder in February, the, uh, the, the biggest February storm. We've still got about two feet on the ground from this weekend. The groundhog and, uh, lied. What? <laughs> the, groundhog, the groundhog lied. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you can certainly grow indoors if you don't have a greenhouse. Um, lots of people are growing in garages, in basements. Um, I'm setting up a, a beautiful little designer system just off our kitchen right now for growing herbs using an aquarium. So, you know, there's lots of things that you can do indoors. You can really make it small. I mean, you know, oh, sure. the size of an aquarium, that's, that's really fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's a technique for using fish waste, and so it doesn't matter if it's coming out of a 10-gallon aquarium or a 500-gallon tank. It's all just using the technique. So, But the challenge is if you grow indoors, you, you've got to provide the light. If you're growing outdoors in a greenhouse, Mother Nature does that for free. So, you know, when you're trying to make the decision about whether or not to get a greenhouse, that's what I always tell people is just, you know, think about the free light that you get when you're outdoors. Now, can you, do, can you, can you create a setup using uh, saltwater fish, or do they have to be freshwater? Well, the problem with saltwater fish is that plants typically don't like salt water. Very true. So people have done this growing um, seaweed and algae and things like that. But most of us think about growing vegetables uh, with our aquaponic system, and, and it's just not really compatible with salt. So that's the downside. Now, as far as vegetables, what would you recommend that you start off with, or should you basically use the um, the zone that you are located in, and then uh, vegetables that are appropriate for that zone, uh, you know, go by that, or you know, by using this method, can you really grow anything that you want? Well, uh, I'll answer your last question first, which is yes, you can grow anything that you want. And the whole zone thing is really about temperature. You know, it's about how low, how cold it gets in your environment uh, in the winter. And so you're, you're going to have issues with your fish long before you have issues with your plants. So, um, you know, you probably don't need to pay a lot of attention to zone. You create your own zone, frankly, if you're growing in a greenhouse or you're growing indoors. And you can set up aquaponic systems outdoors uh, in a cold climate. Uh, there are two ways of thinking about that. One is that you could just grow, 
say, six months out of the year. Uh, that's certainly an option, and it just really depends on what you're doing with your fish. So if you're growing fish to eat, most fish take between one year and two years to grow all the way up to plate size. And so you just would need to make sure that you had a local hatchery nearby that you could get semi-mature fish from so that by the end of the summer they'll be ready to harvest, which is entirely doable if you've got a hatchery near you. Just you know, let them know that you're going to come by and pick up you know, six to eight inch fish. So that's certainly an option. A little bit of downside there in that you actually need to establish your bacteria base in your system, and that's going to be set way back with freezing temperatures. So it's it's not going to be as productive of a system as if it's going year-round, but it's possible. Another way of doing it is by growing uh, very cold-water fish. Um, A lot of people think of trout when they think of growing outdoors in the winter. And I, a friend of mine here, and in fact the guy that got me into aquaponics in the first place, the one who dragged me to his basement, uh, last winter he grew trout all winter long. And he kept a small heater in there just to make sure, you know, like one of those pond heaters that just melts the ice on top, just to make sure that the water was flowing and that the fish didn't suffocate from a layer of ice going across the top. And those fish did perfectly fine, and in the spring, he harvested in the spring and then replaced them with something else. And so, you know, if you can get your fish timing right, there, there certainly are ways to do it outdoors. Now, with, with the um, types of fish, um, is there, I mean, can you pretty much select any type of uh, fish that you would like to raise or I mean are there any um, I mean are there any guidelines any limitations anything like that no beyond what uh, what I was mentioning earlier that you want to make sure like you would never grow trout and tilapia together the problem with doing that is number one trout are carnivorous <laughs> they would they would eat the tilapia before the next day went by. So, but even if they decided these weren't particularly appetizing tilapia, then you've got an issue with temperature. When you think about and a, and a good way to do this is just to think about the indigenous environment that these fish are used to being in. You know, trout's used to being in a cold running stream. Tilapia actually come from very brackish lakes in Africa. And so they're used to still water that's very warm. They don't need a ton of oxygen. Uh, Trout like cold water and a lot of oxygen and a lot of movement in their water. So just make sure that you get something that's used to being in the same environment and that they're going to play nicely together and not eat each other. And do do you have a list of recommended species of fish in your book? Yes. I do, and I talk a little bit about some of them. Um, we've mentioned koi already, um, but uh, catfish is another one. Uh, there are a lot of people that are growing catfish, uh, especially in the south where they, they really love catfish. Catfish is a great fish to grow in aquaponics because it can take a wide range of temperature. Um, so if you're interested in that kind of thing, that's, a, that's an option. 
What about disease? Um, how do you prevent disease from occurring? And, uh, well, does it occur? And if it does, what do you do? The best, it's, it's like the trite thing, you know, that an uh, ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Mm. Um, you really want to make sure that you're getting very healthy, disease-free fish to begin with. Uh, it's highly recommended that you quarantine new fish before they go into an existing aquaponic environment. And this just means putting them into another tank for a week and just kind of keeping an eye on them and make sure they don't start, start uh, developing symptoms. Um, so with all of that, as long as you ensure that you put clean, healthy fish into your system to begin with, it's actually been found that aquaponic systems have far less disease than aquaculture systems. Interesting. Uh, in commercial aquaculture, they often have to add uh, antibiotics into the system, and they're mm. treating disease on a regular basis. I have only had to treat disease once in my system, and it was because I introduced some goldfish from the pet store, and I didn't quarantine them and I had a big problem on my hands and I had to sterilize the entire system. Um, but generally, in aquaponics, you rarely see disease, and I'm pretty convinced that it's because it is such a, a thriving, balanced, natural environment. You've got that water flowing through these plant growing beds that end up with this wonderful community of microbes and fungi and worms and and I just think that when, you know, when you, you create a natural system like that, that there are benefits that we just can't even begin to understand. Um, the same thing's been found with plant disease. In hydroponics, there's a disease called pythium, which is also uh, referred to as root rot. Mm. And it's kind of the scourge of the hydroponic world, yeah. you know. It's just, ugh, they just hate the word pythium, and they lose a tremendous amount of crops to pythium. It's almost non-existent in an aquaponic system. And I believe the reason is that you don't have this sterile system. You have the, the uh, biology in your system to fight these diseases. So they, they end up being very, very healthy systems, very low maintenance. And just out of curiosity, because of all of the issues that uh, we cover uh, concerning honeybees, uh, as well as other pollinators, if you wanted to, could you create a habitat that is specifically uh, designed to attract pollinators? Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. I, I think it would be kind of neat to use this method uh, to, say, create a butterfly habitat. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, I have got... I, I have um, a butterfly habitat um, that I've been just adding and adding to, and uh, many fellow master gardeners as well. It's just people who love uh, gardening are starting to take a look at the plants that they are adding to their gardens and... You know, it's it's not just something that is there for their own beauty, but to uh, really provide food for some of the prettier pollinators. But uh, also with the honeybees, if we can do something to provide uh, food for them, especially since you know we're dealing with so many problems with uh, the chemicals that are being applied. 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, just something that um, it's like, oh, look, you know, there's a place where we can stop and eat. Right, right, exactly. Yep. And you can't apply those chemicals in an aquaponic system. It's, uh, I, I have a friend of mine. everything. Well, exactly. I have a friend of mine in Florida that when she, she's an aquaponic farmer and she will point to her fish tank and say, that's my organic certification board right there. You know? <laughs> well, you know, something because is... anything you apply to the plants, if you're if you're applying a, a you know pesticide or uh, even growth stimulants, they're going to affect the fish. And antibiotics and uh, hormones, you know, any any nasty thing you might give to your fish, you're going to be affecting your plants. And so, because it's this this complete ecosystem, you really have to pay attention to the entire system. Let me ask you this. Since you've been teaching and lecturing, how widespread has this become, not just in the United States, but what about overseas? How many people are really taking a close look at this and saying, you know something, we need to do this in this particular community or you know, start implementing this type of practice in areas where maybe there isn't a lot of food or they have uh, different issues with the soil, what have you. I mean, is it becoming really, really widespread? You know, June, it's so hard to answer that question, in part because I'm I'm always a little cautious because I live in my own bubble, (laughs) you know, and to me it's becoming just mind-blowingly expansive as far as how many people are aware of it and yet I think it's still just the tip of a pinhead as far as the number of people that are aware of it so I think that it's growing a lot but it's growing from a very small new base that said there are definitely pockets of activity Um, Australia is uh, in many ways, much further along with aquaponic gardening, certainly with with uh, home aquaponics, than we are here in the U.S. I mean, they they really started things out there in Australia um, back around 2003, 2004, and there's a couple of guys out there that run forum sites and have businesses that are uh, doing great work to get people involved. So Australia. Uh, you, on a per capita basis is probably five years ahead of us. Um, then you've got, you know, I, I'm hopefully going to be going to India this fall because there's an aquaponics conference happening back there and some people have been writing grants with an Indo-American partnership to get some of us that are involved in aquaponics here over there to really teach about aquaponics in India. Uh, my and what is son that and I are happening? traveling to, to Japan in the end of March, ah. and we're working with a group called Japan Aquaponics, having a fundraiser there, because they are building small home aquaponics systems for people that were hit in the tsunami, so that they can start growing their own fish and vegetables in a way that they're not concerned about the nuclear issues. Yeah, so. that's a very, very big concern. Yeah, so it's being looked at as a solution to a lot of really interesting problems out there. 
uh, and but I believe we're we're still right on that pinhead that there's just so few people who know about aquaponics and so much more that we can be doing and we will be doing uh, really in the near future. Sylvia, when is the India event? Uh, early November. Wow, the, I, I think that uh, it, it, it's such a great model that can be used in so many different climates, and especially, you know, doesn't matter what um, the skill set is. I think that it's something that's highly doable, whether you have a very large community or just even you know somebody that's just looking to uh, provide for themselves. Well, and when you think about using aquaponics as an agricultural technique um, in in solving many of the issues that we're facing in our future, the first thing that comes to mind is how little water is used in aquaponics. Uh, when you think about it, I always find it just sort of ironic that a, a agricultural technique that has aqua in the beginning of its name is actually incredibly water efficient because the water is all recirculated through the system. It's not misted up into the air through a sprinkling system, and it's not draining down into the groundwater. It is recirculating, so the only water that you use is that which evaporates and what the plant takes up. And so it tends to use about uh, 10% of the water of traditional agriculture. So that's a big plus when you're talking about places like India um, and, uh, frankly, the entire world. You know, uh, water is going to become a bigger and bigger issue very fast. And so coming up with water-wise ways to grow your plants is important. The next way that it's incredibly efficient from a, a future of agriculture standpoint is when you think about it, you can plunk an aquaponic system anywhere. So right now we have um, uh, taken 40% of the Earth's available land surface and cleared it for agriculture, which is just always kind of a mind-bending number to me. 40% of the land surface on the globe has already been cleared. So we don't have a lot of room to go around knocking down more rainforests and, and you know, wherever else we're thinking about clearing away land. Oh, not we to mention have further to stop. Not to mention further devastating the land, the the, uh, the people, and all the other living beings on this earth by the push for all these GMO crops. Uh, right. And uh, <laughs> right. I'm sure that the chemical boys must love you. <laughs> well, I would be honored if they uh, they went after me as hard as they will after you. Well, you know, something I look at this <laughs> it means way. you're really effective. I, I do my part by providing uh, educational information with folks such as yourself that are experts so that uh, they can tune in along with the rest of the million-plus uh, audience that we have globally, and uh, we provide jobs for them. So, uh, there you go. Love there the fact that they tune in every day. Uh, exactly. Well, aquaponic farms can uh, be set up in abandoned warehouses, parking lots, any place where you have land that has just been so toxified that you really shouldn't be growing food in it. 
you know, all these places, we can actually start growing our food close to the urban centers that so many of us, you know, over half the population lives in an urban center now, and it's just going to get more and more, right? Now we can be growing our food right there in the urban center. You know, it's interesting that you say that because in New York City, uh, specifically in Brooklyn, I remember visiting some of the community gardens that were really beautiful, and it's interesting. They were built on top of old parking lots, and basically what they did was uh, they built they built raised beds mm-hmm. in order to grow the vegetables and fruit that they grow. And if you think about it, um, if you use something like a recycled bathtub or something like that, it uh, wouldn't really matter where you're growing it because uh, basically you're it's, – it's almost like um, – <laughs> A container gar- garden that's just gone to the nth degree, and uh, you know, exactly. I, I just love the fact that it's something that um, you know you can even. I mean, with some some models, depending upon how small they are, you could actually move it to a different location, which is great. Yes, yes, exactly. And you know, fish are the same way, right? I mean, as long as they're living in a tank. Um, you know, they, they can be right there with your vegetables. And now you've reduced the food miles for fish, which is kind of a nice thing. Uh, my next question is, how much energy do you use? Because there have been some people that have said, you know, it takes a lot of energy in order to care for the fish and grow the vegetables, this and that. Aren't there, aren't there uh, pieces of equipment that are solar-powered or powered by alternative energy that can be uh, incorporated into the model that you build? Absolutely. And when you think about it, think about how much oil is used in traditional soil-based agriculture, right? You, You start with plowing the earth using a tractor. You then go through and you you seed it. Uh, you put on pesticides, you put on fertilizers, you know, all of these things are oil-based. The harvesting machines, the, you know, all of that is, is very oil-based. In aquaponics, everything that's being used is electricity-based. And electricity can be re- derived through renewable means. And so, yes, there is power. There is not a lot of power. You can design, and, and we, in fact, I spent my morning packing up a system that is, um, has only one pump, and this is a 300-gallon tank and eight grow beds, and, and, I mean, it's one pump that's driving that entire thing, and that pump does not take that much power. So you've got your pump that takes power, and that can certainly be run using renewable means. The only other things that could take power, but you have control over this, is heating for your fish. Mm -hmm. And people are using lots of really interesting ways to do this and reducing their power in doing it. Um, You can use passive solar design. You can use geothermal. Um, There's uh, something called a rocket heater, which I'm not real familiar with, but I know people talk about about it a lot. Yeah, Yeah, that's pretty wild. There's ways of driving, um, sort of using the heat from the earth and using that to heat up your tanks. So, and it depends on your choice of fish, too. If you, sorry, 
if you get a fish that is uh, pretty tolerant of lower temperatures, then you don't have to worry about heating your water. Mm. So that's a possible source of, of energy that people talk about. The other one is if you grow indoors indoors as opposed to in a greenhouse, you're going to need to provide lights for those plants. But again, there are types of lights that take less power than others. Uh, compact fluorescents or T5 fluorescents don't take a lot of power. LEDs don't take a lot of power. Um, so there, there's lights like that that you really can make more energy-wise um, decisions, choices. And the fact that you're growing your own food without chemicals, without pesticides, and you're saving those food miles from having to drive down to the grocery store and buy food that was possibly shipped 1,500 miles across the country to of get course. to you. You know, I would say net, net, you're probably saving quite a bit of energy doing this. Um, my last question for you is about seeds. Yeah. Do you, do you save your seeds? Do you swap seeds with other people that you know? Um, there's a lot of buzz about seed libraries, which I think is absolutely fascinating. Mm -hmm. And, um, I mean, I typically um, save my seeds, and I also will get seeds from other organic gardeners, um, family members, so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, what, do you, what do you do and what do you recommend? Oh, all of the above. Absolutely. There's, you know, once you get above the, um, the line of the media bed and into where the plants are, it's no different than any other garden. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, you should be using seeds that you can save. Um, and as long as you're doing that, then it, by all means, uh, I certainly have <laughs> stacks of envelopes, um, downstairs in our cooler that, that I have saved. <laughs> and old saved coffee and, cans. <laughs> exactly. I was keeping baby jars for a while, actually, and uh, way back when, and a couple years ago, my husband finally said, okay, you need to throw some of these away. Um, now, what, so, do, you, do you sow the seeds directly into the beds, or do you start off with seedlings, or can you do a combination of both? You can do a combination of both. We, I used to uh, start them separately in a seed starting tray, and now I just, I don't know if it's laziness or what, but I've taken to just um, uh, sowing them directly. I have, one, I have eight beds in my greenhouse, and one of the beds I really kind of use as a seed nursery. And I put the seeds directly into the, uh, the media, and then I'll sprinkle over the top, you know, once every other day, and they just grow directly, and I just transfer them around. Uh, but you can, you can certainly start them in a... Um, uh, seed starting tray. You can buy them from the the nursery. You yeah, just need I mean, to wash the soil off the roots, and yeah. then you can put them in your system. Sylvia, it has been wonderful having you on the show today. Can you wonderful. tell our audience the title of your book, and also can you give your website as well as the online community so that folks that are tuning in can participate with your online community if they want to learn more, and also buy the book, of course. So the book is called Aquaponic Gardening, a step-by-step -step guide to growing fish and vegetables together. And you can get it on our website at theaquaponicsource.com. There's only one S there, so aquaponic is singular. And the community site is aquaponics, 
community.com. So aquaponics is plural there. Uh, but it's a, a great place to be. So thank you for this opportunity. You're really very welcome. And, folks, thank you so much for tuning in. This has been June Sawyer with the Organic View Radio Show. Have a great afternoon.